I came to medical school not to bring diversity, but to bring a presence. Like, I wanted to be the face in the room that a black patient could look to and just breathe a sigh of relief, you know? Just learn how to practice medicine, but also learn how to practice using your voice for, like, um, for advocating for those uh, the underserved in yeah. medicine. So it's interesting. You're not placed um, anywhere, like, by chance. So wherever you are, like you should take responsibility of the people who will come after you, as well as the people who were before you that did not feel safe to speak. It's a, it's a beautiful, difficult responsibility. I was looking around the campus like, okay, let me just get a feel for it. And then there was literally no black person in sight. I didn't see anyone. I didn't meet anyone other than the people that I met when I went to the Vespers. And I met a couple like third and fourth years and like they all knew each other so i was like okay they're here but where are they there's this uh this online um there's this online program called potpourri where you see everybody's picture yeah. i think like when it, when you're looking at pictures you're like looking at oh who, yeah, who is everybody yeah exactly so you just go through that and and um and I, I i think that's it's kind of a weird thing because when you go you'll go up to yourself and you introduce yourself and i think it's very easy when it's like a black male there's like oh hey how you doing it but then when it's a black female, it's like you want to introduce yourself, but you're like, oh, is you it going to... I knew I had to come to orientation if for no other reason so that I could actually see what the other black students were like. I think this process is not something that even happens one year. I think it happens year after year. Should I sit with the other black students? And then I looked, I was like, all of the Asian students are sitting with each other. The Indian students are sitting with each other. Why couldn't I sit with a group of people without that look like me without being the militant black person? Before I even stepped foot on campus, like I was here with my parents and we would go to like Walmart, you know, and like, you know, those like places to get like furniture and stuff. And even my parents, they were like, where are the black people? <laughs> my first genuine like, this is another black person interaction was actually with Simone. Like I saw her and she's like tall and beautiful. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I loved like your edges. It's like she had these really like beautifully laid edges and she had her super uppity bun. <laughs> And I was like, oh my gosh. And you know, I was like, this is another black girl like me. Like, I wonder what kind of people I'm gonna meet. And I remember um, just sitting by this random white guy in our class and not really um, interacting much with him on the first day. And I remember seeing this tall, elegant, just gorgeous queen walk towards <laughs> me. She had just asked a question about um, preventive medicine or something. And I was just impressed by that question. Like, wow, I'm interested in minority health, health disparities. Like, wait a minute, what is going on? And before I could even say anything, she opened her mouth and said, you're a baby here or fly. <laughs> There's just that level of identification that I think is just so beautiful. Um, that I think to me has been really exciting experiencing in med school, not just um, friends that are interested in the same things I am and interested in um, helping people in the same way I am, but are also just like so similar to me, like culturally, um, experience-wise, um, and just in a lot of different ways.
I'm Adrian. I'm a third year medical student. And I'm Martha. I'm a fourth year medical student. Well, not yet fourth year. I finished my third year and I'm taking a year off right now to do my master's in bioethics. Rising fourth year. Rising fourth year, like that. Mm -hmm. And um, with this year to do my bioethics, uh, to do my bioethics degree, I have come up with this podcast. Okay. Yeah. So I think the reason for this podcast started sort of maybe in my first year of medical school. Okay. Um, I looked around, I was getting for the black people, and as years went by, when I did like second year and finally my third year, when I was in the hospital actually working with doctors and nurses and other medical staff, um, I would also find myself looking for other black people in the medical staff. So as soon as I got into a team, I, was, I would look like, how many black people are here? Or And usually they were done. Like you I would be the only- for providers or yeah. like specifically- doctors or nurses anyone or anyone <laughs> anyone in our team who was black because like if you say okay i'm looking for a black doctor to be like our attending mm-hmm. you the chances was that's pretty slim that's not happening yeah. that's that's not happening but if i was like okay there could be like residents nurses other people in our team mm-hmm. so that's what i would always look for i would just look for any black people that were in our team mm-hmm. and usually i would be the only one even when i wasn't looking for for providers mm-hmm. very rarely do i remember having any other black people i think there was once i had a black attending which was amazing mm-hmm. um was but dr. usually Trey? yeah dr trey okay. yeah but other than that i would always be oh and i had once i had a uh, black resident yeah <laughs> so, but, two times. <laughs> so two times okay. but other than that i would be the only black person and every time i saw a black person in the hospital i would get really happy and i was I'd look at them and sort of hold my fist up in my mind. <laughs> I held my fist up in my mind. But it, I started to wonder, where do I fit in as a black person in medicine? Mm-hmm. There's so few of us when I look around. And I see so many patients, so many black patients, but so few providers. I started to wonder, where do I really fit in mm-hmm. into medicine? What is my role? And um, how do others see me in medicine? We want this podcast to serve as a sort of primer and educational tool. A primer on what your black medical classmates are experiencing in training, what your residents, our black residents are experiencing in training, and what your black attendings are experiencing in practice. We want to contextualize these experiences within American medical history, black American medical history. We want to bring this history into full color. You are listening to A Medical History in Color. historians but our bodies as black people carry history by nature of the history of our skin and its reception in this country our existence is political this podcast isn't meant to be heavy-handed but let's consider this episode one that should give you the lay of the land so to speak the medical profession has always been classist and elitist since its conception this isn't really a secret but we don't think much of that now because that's generally the nature of academia at this point. Like more people with more money get into school and get to do graduate education. 
Medicine, however, has a very specific racist element to its conception and practice in the U.S. We're starting briefly at a point in 1619. America transports its first shipment of Africans to America. As late as 1700, the U.S. had 20,000 black people in it. Slaves did not just represent free labor, they represented capital. People literally took out loans on slaves <laughs> at the time. Um, it's not funny. But. It's not, but that's how, that's how much people anticipated making money off of their bodies. That's how they were valued. So by 1860, their number was 4 million and their valuation at 4 billion. There was a vested economic interest of white physicians in slavery. Doctoring slaves provided the bulk of their workload and their income in the period before the American Civil War. Six slaves could not produce their value in cotton and plantation owners regularly called upon physicians to keep their slaves in working shape. Physicians had a complicated image at this point in history. Yeah, so I was reading this book called A Short History on Medical Ethics. And it discussed uh, what doctors were like back then. Mm -hmm. So right now, when I think of a doctor, I see like, you know, someone who is wise, well-cultured, elegant, know. just like gl gliding in like wealth and knowledge. Just, a leader in the yeah, community. Yeah, right? A leader, <laughs> just what, good manners, self-sacrificial. But back then, in the 18th century, this wasn't how medicine was at, was like at all. So medical, medical education excluded white people, poor white people, I should say, black people mm -hmm. and women. So most of the formal education was done abroad in Europe. So in cities, large cities like Edinburgh, London and Paris, where the white doctors in the uh, the white people who wanted to be doctors in the U.S., specifically mm -hmm. men, would have to go abroad to those countries to be educated. So. In the U.S., what they did before then was more of an apprenticeship sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So what happened is you would see someone who's like your local doctor and you would basically follow them around, do their little chores and just learn from them. And at that point, there was no system, no rules, no education, like no uh, structured education. There was no step one, step two, step three. <laughs> None of the money that you're pouring into medicine now. <laughs> it was nothing like that. It was no regulations whatsoever we're just shadowing yeah basically yeah mm. so then um around the time of the american revolution there were three thousand five hundred colonial practitioners in quotation marks okay and then but only 350 of them had degrees from european medical students so finally they were like okay you, america was like we have to do something about this <laughs> so they started to have uh, medical colleges in philadelphia in new york harvard dartmouth and finally, in the 1800s, they had about 10 medical colleges. Okay. Now, by then, they had two types of doctors. Mm -hmm. So there was the ones who hardly had any education. They were not really um, literate. Mm -hmm. um, and they were pretty, pretty dangerous to be around. And then the second group were the elite ones, the ones who were educated and competent. But all they did was fight amongst themselves. And then medical students were basically considered hooligans. Um, <laughs> the book that I was reading, A Short History of Medical Ethics, um, in quotes said they were unruly and coarse. And then a medical paper said, it is fashionable to speak of the medical profession as a body of jealous, quarrelsome men whose chief delight is the annoyance and ridicule 
of each other. The funny thing about that is I still tell people now that medical students are some of the most horrible people <laughs> ever meet. I'm like, medical students are not nice people. Like, we want to serve, mm -hmm. but medical school doesn't make us nice people. That's true. I think we're school. like super stressed. <laughs> yeah. so by the end, you're like, <laughs> people we're are done. taking naps and it makes you angry. You're like, why are you sleeping? No, but. <laughs> So I mean, maybe medical students are still hooligans, but by the time we become doctors, we're beating down, we're beaten down with professionalism. Okay. Yeah. So, but that's not the case with them. But even by the time they became doctors, we're fighting amongst each other. And there's this one doctor called Dr. Lusenberg, who was fired because he was basically a terrible person to be around. But he also used the corpses of his patients that were under his care as target practice. Mm -hmm. So target practice, target practice, like for darts. Yeah, not for darts. For um, well, actually, they didn't specify, but for just shooting? Said for shooting. That's what I'm thinking. What? Yeah. So like, these are patients under his care that he was supposed to take care of, and when they died, instead of like giving their bodies back to the family, being respectful of these people, he used them as target practice. How do people find him out? You know, I don't know, hmm. but he got fired. So <laughs> that's good. That's one thing that they were doing right at the time. They're like, we can't keep you around doing that, but you need to secretly experiment on the patient's bodies. You can't use them for target practice. No, we can experiment on them. Okay. Okay. So doctors were a different breed back then. Today, the physician is encouraged to remain as apolitical as possible. So you're talking to patients and you're not supposed to bring up your political leanings. You don't want to bring up religion. You're basically supposed to be as neutral as possible so people feel comfortable to you coming to you as a physician. So you don't come off biased, I guess, in any of your um, assessments as a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, but then doctors mix their politics with practice unabashedly. Um, doctors and other so-called men of science invested a lot of time in trying to justify slavery with pseudoscience espousing black inferiority. So the theory at the time was that black people were not just slaves because of their skin tone, because I don't think it was ever that simple. No one ever simply said like, okay, black people, you get to be black people because you are dark. But really they would try to justify that by saying things like, oh, well, black people and white people are actually completely biologically different. So black people had less developed nervous systems. That was the idea. So the idea was that we had smaller cranial vaults. So we had smaller brains and were less capable of living independently. So we So what were we what, what were we doing in Africa? I don't before, know. Before them. Okay. I, I don't know. You should ask I that's what we were just sitting over there playing I guess with waiting. Sticks, waiting for people to come take care of us. But a lot was the thing. So we weren't smart enough to take care of ourselves. And in addition to that, not only were we not seen as intelligent enough to take care of ourselves, because we have the small cranial vault with the small brain, we also weren't thought of capable of intellectual study. So we weren't thought of capable of studying medicine, but really honestly, any form of study. There were these ideas that were very pervasive at the time um, and very open, honestly, because then doctors would publish these findings in their journals supporting these different hypotheses about black inferiority and they would share them amongst themselves. So then medical journals weren't even open to the general public. So they would publish these different things, you know, talking about how small black people's brains are, how we were more likely to be lazy, how we were inferior, um, how we were more slovenly. Um, there was just all these really terrible terms or this really very convenient lens through which white doctors at the time supported slavery. And science spent a lot of time trying to justify slavery in a way that kind of lent to public arrogance rather than now people see science as, you know, stripping back 
arrogance mm-hmm. or like, I mean, ignorance mm. rather. <laughs> right. Not arrogance. Definitely not arrogance, but ignorance is mm-hmm. like now science is meant to be like illuminating and, you know, it's supposed to ex- show you the truth of the matter. But then science was basically used to continue to support the institution of slavery and racism in the U.S. So doctors then were really adamant that black and white people were biologically dissimilar. Um, figures such as Drs. John S. Wilson and Dr. Samuel A. Cartwright developed a thesis that black people had to be given different medical treatment than white patients because we were so biologically different than whites. And this conveniently made it so that only Southern doctors could possibly know how to practice on black people because that's then- convenient. Yeah, very convenient. <laughs> so it's like the main population of black people in the US at the time was based in the South because of their labor force. And they're like, wow, only Southern doctors could really know the full breadth of practice because they get to practice on slaves and white people. So um, like I said, a widely held belief at the time was that black people had less developed brains. We also were thought to suffer from specific diseases that we now know are just um, the conclusions or rather the sequela vitamin deficiency. So for instance, black people were thought to specifically suffer from pellagra, not white people. Um, we were thought to suffer more from syphilis or specifically from syphilis. So white people did not get syphilis. It was thought that only black people got syphilis and that when we did get syphilis because we had such underdeveloped brains, we syphilis didn't attack the nervous system like we know it does now in black people. It attacked our heart. That was a <laughs> hypothesis. They didn't have any actual information or evidence to substantiate this, but that is what men of science quote unquote thought at the time and they even made up their own diseases yeah so like (laughs) these people sat there and just made up diseases to describe black people so there's this one disease called dreptomania and it's the disease that caused slaves to run away not so like (laughs) to them a slave running away couldn't be like a natural thing of course slaves wouldn't have to wouldn't want to run away so if you're running away you must be diseased because slavery is good for you exactly so (laughs) So this came about if the white slave owner was either too kind or too cruel to the slave. You had to be at like a nice middle, not too kind, not too cruel. And but you always had to have the slaves um, in a position of submission. So they had to look at you with awe and reverence. OK. Yeah. But they couldn't be too fearful. Of but you. not too fearful because then they, the disease would like take them over and cause them. So to like you're like a stern parent more. You're not a slave master. Yeah. It's like, like a. A stern parent, a yeah. Stern parent. Okay. But you still had to beat them and things like that. Oh, okay. But yeah, not too cruel. And then there was another one, which forgive me, I find difficult to pronounce. Dysphagia athopecia. Hmm. That's that's the that's the um, that's how I'm gonna say it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think and, that was a good try. Thank you. <laughs> and this affected the body and the mind, so it was considered to be more prevalent among free black people. So the only time it it would affect slaves Mm -hmm. was if the slaves lived like they were free. If the Mm -hmm. slave master gave them too much freedom to enjoy life, that's the only time this disease attacked them. But other than that, it only attacked the free black people. And they said that, this is in quotes, the slaves were apt to much mischief, which appears as if intentional, but is mostly owing to (laughs) stupidness of mind and insincerity insensibility of the nerves induced by the disease wow that's very specific so it's like they had nervous system damage from being free from being free yeah okay so these were these were two diseases that that um were to help the slaves was to help the inferior black people okay yeah so i mean with all these odds stacked against black people the natural question is 
how did black people even get into medicine? If people thought that our brains were smaller, if we were seen as insane, if we tried to run away from slave masters, how did black people even end up practicing medicine? Um, well, the same way white pr practitioners did at the time. Medical education wasn't standardized yet. So practitioners learned by way of informal apprenticeship. So like Martha said earlier, they walked around basically shadowing doctors and gaining medical knowledge from them. They learned um, how to make different medicines and stuff. At the time, bleeding patients was really popular. It was really popular to induce diarrhea and vomiting in patients. So you basically followed around a doctor and they would show you when to apply these treatments, quote unquote, and um, how to apply these treatments. So they served under a more experienced physician who showed them the ropes. Black people had religious, magical medical practices that they brought with them from Africa. So I think all cultures, including um, elements of white culture, started at this idea that there were religious ties to sickness, right? Um, but black people, more recently taken from Africa, had these um, medical practices. They weren't just based in magic, but they actually were very scientific. And we're going to go over that in another episode about slave medicine. But um, one of the first noted African-American practitioners was a man by the name of Dr. James Durham. So he was one such African-American physician who gained um, notoriety as a physician by practicing first under a preceptor known as Dr. John Kersley Jr. So Dr. James Durham, um, this first black physician, first African-American physician working under apprenticeship to become a physician, his birth date is unclear, but people peg him as being born around 1762. When his master, Dr. John Kurdsley, was imprisoned around the time of the civil, not the civil war, the American Revolution, Mary War, um, he fell ill, he died imprisoned. And so the ownership of Dr. James Durham, who had been studying very fastidiously under Dr. John Kurdsley, um, was transferred to different men, including a man who later let him buy his freedom, Dr. Robert Dove. So Dr. Robert Dove is a surgeon and he notices that Dr. James Durham has this brilliant medical acumen. And so he allows him to trade this impressive medical acumen to a certain extent, not trade because he keeps it right, but um, he allows him to buy his freedom because he sees him as smart. So this is like late at the close of the American Revolution. So around like the late 1770s um, and 80s. Um, so Dr. James Durham goes on to have his own private practice in New Orleans and he's bringing in about $3,000 a year by 1788. Um, he meets Dr. Benjamin Rush, who is this really, um, preeminent physician at the time, the most preeminent physician at the time who had trained abroad in England. And he meets him in 1788. At the time, the law was not as firm or not as black and white as, ironically, um, black students couldn't go to med school and white students couldn't go to med school. Like I said, if you manage to get an apprentice, you can learn medicine at the time. Um, but what ended up happening is that this became more unofficial policy, it seemed, in the 1700s. So in 1700s, people would just have black students apply to med school and then say, no, you can't come to this med school. Um, but then in 1877, the Great Compromise happened. So the Great Compromise happens at the close of Reconstruction or what's considered Reconstruction. So basically, during the period of time after the Civil War, the Union is trying to get the South to integrate and the South is resisting it vehemently, but there's only but so much they can do because this is now federal law at this point, right? But the Great Compromise, which happened in the course of a presidential election in 1877, um, was an unofficial compromise that wasn't documented on paper, but basically the Union withdrew troops from the South and the South was allowed to proceed with its 
I guess, the life that it had before the Civil War. So they immediately started repealing all the civil rights legislation that was achieved during the Reconstruction. And um, so this meant that Southern schools were turned swiftly to not allowing black students to come to them if they could help it. Um, they would turn down black students just like that. In the Northeast, though, some schools did admit black students. So then we move on to the first African-American to receive a formal MD. Now this guy was named Dr. James McCune Smith. So he was born on April 18, 1813 in New York City. So there isn't much that's known about his family, but he's often um, quoted to say that he is the son of a self-emancipated bondwoman. Mm-hmm. So he went to school in New York City at the school called African Free School, which I think is a really cool name. Yeah, African Free School. And he was considered bright, articulate, and at the age of 11, he gave his first abolitionist speech um, at his school where Lafayette was attending. Hmm. So I thought that was pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah. And then, he, but he wasn't perfect. I think a lot of the times when we think about black pioneers we try to make them as you know perfect people who Mm -hmm. didn't do bad things but this guy used to get into fights with people (laughs) like um he's the book the article i was reading about said he used to get in fights with these irish guys on his streets and so he wasn't some perfect student floating around doing no terrible things he used to get in fights but he would throw hands if he had to if he had to So around one friend um, described him as at a forge with the bellows with the bellows handle in one hand and the Latin grammar in the other. Mm-hmm. So in one hand, here's his brilliant, articulate guy, and the other hand is, I'm ready to throw down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was a man of the time. Yes. So he was trained at a university in Glasgow in Scotland because he was rejected by Columbia and Geneva Medical College in the 1820s. Okay. So he had to go all the way to Europe. And you're thinking, okay, how could this guy afford to go to Europe? Well, there was an abolitionist group called the Glasgow, Glasgow Emancipation Society, which helped him travel overseas where he earned his bachelor's and his master's. And then once he was done with everything, he returned to the U.S. to begin practicing. What's kind of interesting about this, too, is that Right now, we're at a period of medical education where it's like people have to go overseas to get educated, kind of mm. like similar to the beginning. So I think it's kind of interesting that you come, we've come full circle where it's like you had black doctors and white doctors who had to go overseas to get this MD. Mm-hmm. And now we're at a place where we've reached, I guess, critical capacity with medical school trainee mm. spots. And people are again returning overseas, like the places like Australia and the Caribbean and where else, maybe not specifically in Europe, like McCune Smith, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Mm. Hmm. So when, when he returned, um, he went back to New York City, and he started uh, practicing in his home, and he also used to teach evening school. So he would offer $3, it was $3, $3 per quarter, and he would teach To spelling. attend school? Yeah. Or to get to, to tutor? To attend his night school. Okay, okay. Yeah. So he would teach what? them spelling, reading, writing, arithmetic, and geography for mm-hmm. $3 per which I think is a good deal, but... I wish school cost three dollars now. <laughs> Imagine paying three dollars oh to come to Melinda. <laughs> I could make that a one waitress show. <laughs> so he was also an a physician for this orphanage called the Colored Orphan Asylum. So for for, for um, black kids, he was a doctor for them. Yeah. And um, even though at the height of his career he was a great doctor, he was seeing a bunch of patients, he was also the physician for this orphanage. Mm-hmm. He wasn't admitted into the any of the New York uh, Medical Association 
or the American Medical Association. Mm-hmm. So um, the local medical associations uh, could accept uh, black people if they wanted to. So it was at their own discretion. His local was New York, right? Yeah. Like he was like New York Medical Society or mm-hmm. something like that is his chapter of the AMA. But they wouldn't they wouldn't accept him. Okay. And then the a- AMA as a whole wasn't accepting black people in general. Mm-hmm. So they definitely wouldn't accept him. Right. But he wasn't just a doctor, he was also an abolitionist. So he really worked for for his people. So um, <laughs> he said that so proudly. Like, yes. yes. So um, he often collaborated with Frederick Douglass on mm-hmm. his paper, and he used to write in his paper under the pseudonym Communi Pau, or yeah, C O M M U N I P A Paul Communi Pau. Yeah, I don't know what that means, okay. but that was his uh, pseudonym. Mm-hmm. And then he'd also used to write against Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. I love this about history. There's so many things that are different. Like you talk about the AMA, the AMA is completely different then than it was now. And mm-hmm. then Dom- Thomas Jefferson, you're like, oh, Thomas Jefferson, this, this, this person. And then Jefferson is like an avowed racist at this point in history. <laughs> like he literally spends his time writing medical medical research papers about how black people are inferior, but go on. <laughs> yeah, so Thomas Jefferson, then, in his early years, <laughs> he wrote, He wrote. I quote, I advance it, therefore, as a suspicion only that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstances, are inferior to the whites in the endowments both of body and mind. Mm-hmm. And when uh, Dr. When our good doctor, Dr. Smith, read this, he's like, no, 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 this is, this is crazy. Right. So he used to write point by point about how he was wrong. Refuting the arguments. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Petty. <laughs> Petty. <laughs> but scholarly. But scholarly. That's, that's, scholarly. That's what we would like to see. So Smith, um, he believed that in order to demonstrate, dem- no, demonstrating uh, intellectual e- equality mm-hmm. was a way to combat that fake disease that they made up, the... Drippetomania. The, yeah, no, no, the this dysathasia atopesia oh okay for yeah the free for the free disease. yeah the free man's disease okay yeah so that's how he thought you know we could fight against that So you keep hearing all these names and designations. I think we just went through like what several different two other people, two other people, mm-hmm. right? So we had James McCune Smith, who mm-hmm. is the first African American to earn his MD overseas and then practice in the U.S. And then we had Durham, Durham, and Durham is the first practitioner to serve or become educated under an apprentice mm-hmm. while he was still a slave. Yeah, when we were doing the research for this, it's hard to pin down, okay, like this is the first black medical student, this is the first black doctor. And that's primarily because these people are more a reflection of like incremental um, progress made in civil rights for black physicians at the time, and also the evolution of medical education. So you have this education that was originally not standardized, it becomes increasingly standardized, and then the parallel process at that point is black people are gaining more and more traction or Mm -hmm. more professional traction. So it wasn't really simple to pin down their titles that way. But the next dude that we're getting ready to review, he has like the simplest title to understand, (laughs) I would say. And that's Dr. David Peck. So David Peck is the first black Black man Mm -hmm. to gain 
admission to a black medical school or to or a, a medical US, school, mm-hmm. a U.S. medical school here, um, which is Rush College in Illinois. And this happened in 1846. So originally David Peck, he trained under a white anti-slavery doctor in Pittsburgh called Dr. Joseph Gazam. And David Peck has a family who you can say that activism was kind of their thing. It was like their bread and butter. They were active people. Right, exactly. So like his father, John Peck, is this guy who he owns several businesses throughout Pittsburgh. And he uses those businesses to essentially become a conductor on Underground Railroad. So, you know, the Underground Railroad is not an actual railroad, which I I would hope you know at this point. (laughs) And so... You and you're transporting black people from the south and trying to get them to Canada and the north. Mm-hmm. Um, you have these different places, these meeting points or safe houses. So Dr. John Peck used his businesses to essentially operate as some of these safe points along the Underground Railroad. So I thought that was really interesting. He was a minister. Mm-hmm. He's a minister. He was a barber and he was a wig, wig maker. maker. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I kind of want to see what some of those wigs look like. Like if there were actual wigs or he's like, no, these are these are real wigs. We're just, I don't know. I'm really curious, but yeah, so he's this barber, this wig maker, this minister, and then on top of that, this dude is like basically the superintendent for a school. Him and his wife use um, the first church that they opened there, so the African Methodist Episcopal Church. These churches during that time were kind of like meeting points for civil rights activity, and there's several of them throughout the U.S., and there's still, a lot of them are actually still, um, they're still in their various states and stuff, like they haven't been knocked down or anything. And so he opens this church, and this church is not only like a meeting point or a hot place for civil rights activity, it's also the place where they open the first black public school in the area. So it's the first school in the area that you can educate black children in. And their son was naturally one of the first students that attended this mm-hmm. school. So you have this guy, David Peck, he comes from this revolutionary stock. And so it's no wonder that he ends up being the sort of guy who becomes disruptive. Um, in his own way. So he becomes the first black medical student in a U.S. med school, a predominantly white institution, Rush Medical College. And then that's in 1845, 46. And then he doesn't just stop there. After he gets done with his MD, and this is just to show you the huge like divide between like black medical students now and black medical students then. After he gets his MD, which only took a year to get, by the way, but that's it another must be story. nice. All right, only only a year of training. <laughs> After he gets this MD, he goes and he tours Ohio with Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass. You know, um, these doctors have a habit of going with, working with Frederick Douglass because Dr. Mm-hmm. Uh, my doctor, the one I talked about, Dr. James McCune, he mm-hmm. also wrote in Frederick Douglass's newspaper right. about, yeah, so. It's hmm. like Frederick Douglass is like basically collecting like these, <laughs> these pillars of black excellence and he's like, there, I showed you, we could do things. And that's basically how David Peck was, that was his role in, um, in that movement. David Peck is walking and touring Ohio and he's basically serving as a sort of like warning shot to proponents of racism at the time. Like, hey, like black people, we can become practitioners, we're capable of intellectual study, um, give me, render me your receipts about our biological impurity. Like, show me the receipts, run me the receipts on this. So, um, David Peck, um, like I said, I thought the interesting, the history for him was really interesting. So he's basically challenging the status quo and showing like, okay, like we could practice. We're not biologically inferior. Unfortunately, David Peck ended up not having a very 
um, lucrative practice. So you're getting your MD at the time as a black practitioner, but it doesn't change that this country at the time wasn't open to black people practicing medicine. So even when you have black people who were meeting these measures mm -hmm. of, you know, um, intellectual, I would say almost superiority, the way that doctors apparently see themselves, <laughs> they, um, they still were not getting referrals from other white doctors. They still were not having um, patients come to them as readily because mm -hmm. the idea was that they shouldn't be practicing, but not only that they shouldn't be practicing, that they had to be inferior practitioners. So David Peck later becomes a part of this effort to kind of like move free black people in the US and resettle them in Central America, specifically Nicaragua. And he basically spends the rest of his days there. Um, that's something that me and Martha wanted to kind of go into in detail in our Black Pioneers in Medicine episode, but- Not come later. So to recap, in 1619, we get the first shipment of slaves arrive in the United States. And then by the 1700s, they number in the millions. And collectively, they're literally worth billions of dollars. Four billion dollars. Four million slaves. Four, four billion, billion dollars. dollars. Wow. Okay. okay. So in order for these white plantation owners to protect their investments, mm -hmm. they have to call doctors to come and tend to them whenever they get sick, right? Mm -hmm. So now in those days, we discussed doctors were either apprenticed or they went abroad to Europe to receive medical education mm -hmm. if they had that kind of money. Right. Or abolitionist friends. Yeah. Who got to, who could pay for them. <laughs> <laughs> and even with their so-called science, these doctors still had to rely on diseases that they literally made up mm -hmm. to explain why slaves would run away mm -hmm. or why uh, people who were free, freed slaves were happy mm -hmm. and just enjoying life. They decided to make up a disease for that okay. and even would make up things as to why the slaves were um, unhealthy in captivity mm -hmm. rather than it being because they fed them poorly and mm -hmm. kept them in like unsanitary conditions no yeah rather than that yeah, they, they had to make it must have been something else biologically just predisposed to disease exactly right. <laughs> so even with all these odds stacked against them, mm -hmm. black people still found a way to practice medicine. Mm -hmm. So starting from Dr. James Durham, who we said was the first African-American practitioner who trained under his preceptor as a slave, okay. to Dr. James McCune Smith, mm -hmm. who was the first African-American who received a former, formal MD. Mm -hmm. Though it was in Europe, mm -hmm. he still received his MD and came back to New York to practice. Right. And then we also had Dr. David Peck, who was the first African-American to gain admission to a US medical school. Unfortunately, his medical practice wasn't very um, lucrative, but mm -hmm. he did use his intelligence for other things like freeing slaves. Yeah, like the latter of these two men were activists and they were doctors. Mm -hmm. So these, this, I could imagine that this sort of thing mm -hmm. took an immense amount of strength and determination yes. like it's already hard enough to be a medical student but to be a black medical student and then to be a black medical student during these times right. where you were slaves and people looked at you like you were trash mm -hmm. absolutely insane mm -hmm. the amount of strength and determination they had was ridiculous and they really um they were pioneers that opened the doors to black medical students today mm -hmm. but i started to wonder like how are we as black medical students doing today? Mm -hmm. Like realistically speaking, are we doing so much better than we were back then? Some people think so. Some people think so. So I decided to look it up. So 
According to the Association of American Medical Colleges, mm -hmm. as of 2019, the total amount of medical students is 92,758 people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so out of that, almost 93,000 students, black students are 6,783. Okay. Okay, so... In total, we make up 7.3% of medical students. So we're 7% of 93,000 students. Yeah, we're 7%. Okay. Yeah. So I think there's a misconception that African Americans are making like leaps and bounds in medicine. Like we're killing the game everywhere. We're becoming doctors. We are engineers. killing the game everywhere. I mean, we are killing the game, but yeah. like, are we doing that much better? Mm -hmm. So in 1980, Guess how many med students, what percent of medical students were black? Let's say something like four-ish percent? Almost. It was like 5.6% okay. of medical students were black. In 1980. In 1980. Mm -hmm. But in 2019, it's 7.3%. And you know what's so insane about that 1980 number is that a large proportion of that number was probably made up by HBCU That's attendance. That's true. Mm -hmm. Not even black med students in PWIs or mm -hmm. predominantly white institutions. Mm -hmm. So this is only a 2% increase. So we haven't really been doing that much better. Well, it depends, like, I guess how you define better because our numbers are only slightly better, but there definitely is more space made for us in academic settings, right? Like, um, we're not being excluded from classmates' exercises the same way. Um, a black doctor can practice now and not have their practice run into the ground just because you know other physicians don't want to refer patients to them um for the most part even though there's still some difficulties when communicating with white patients in the clinical setting um mostly they're taking our care and they're they're taking our word for it they're taking the institution's word for it that we are exactly as qualified as we're purported to be where we're just as qualified as our white classmates this is not all the time this is not with every individual but i would say there's like there's little there's a little a little bit of progress there made as far as like how included we are in the educational experience there's still some things we can work on though because i would still say that what hasn't changed is that black presence in professional spaces is still its own it still has its own politics attached to it it's still revolutionary in its own way you know like when David Peck is touring Ohio with prominent abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, and he's being used to basically challenge this idea that black people are biologically inferior, that we're not capable of academic study, I feel like it's actually very similar now because you're finding that black people, in order to get into these spaces, we have to be very, we have to be dazzling. You know, we have to do, we have to do all the alley oops if that makes sense. Yeah. And so in that way. I would say that hasn't really changed much. I would say that there's still something that is like inherently disruptive or revolutionary or political about black people showing up in professional spaces and not only showing up in professional spaces, but also excelling in those professional spaces. It's still a challenge to a status quo. And you see that when you have people bring up these different, you know, conversations every time they see a black medical student these whispers of affirmative action every time we talk about black medical students. Even honestly, if you still go on like a lot of forums online with pre-med students, you'll find to this day, there'll be tons of posts the minute that you mention a black medical student or mention anything about black people in medicine. The first thing that's coming up is affirmative
affirmative action and whether or not we're qualified to be in this space. So there definitely is still something very disruptive about our presence here. And I would say that would be what hasn't changed from the period between when David Peck and James Durham and James McCune Smith are practicing and now when me and you and our colleagues are becoming these black physicians. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So I think for any black medical students who are listening to this podcast, I think it's really important to claim your space and where you're at mm-hmm. and to remember that just you being there is revolutionary.